with the rise of social media and the invention of the smartphone, one thing has been on the rise, particularly among millennials and other of younger generations, but I'm sure many of us have seen it. And these are the often extreme birth announcements that you see. Some outlandish, some even bordering on insanity. From gender reveals to birth announcements, Americans as a whole are coming up with new ways, both new and unique, to celebrate the birth of their children. Ironically, doing so in a culture of death like our own. Regardless, soon-to-be parents celebrate by creating unique Instagram pictures to professionally crafted and produced images where they mail out to family members who are having a baby. The announcements communicate the excitement there is with having a new child. Sometimes the ridiculousness of the photos or the creativity expresses the excitement of the parents. The creativity equals the level of excitement. Gender reveals also have been on the rise. You've seen things from cakes filled with different colored balloons uh, released into the air, uh, different things. These announcements, of course, are about the gender, all ironically in a culture that wants to remove gender from its language. Regardless of how outlandish and ridiculous these things are, and many of us, I'm sure, have participated in, regardless of how unique they may be, none of them will compare. None of them will ever compare with the birth announcement we'll consider today. I mean, who else has had angels singing on a hillside at the birth announcement of their child? Who else has put a star in the sky so that magi from the east can follow it and to find the child to be born? The birth announcement of Christ pales in a comparison to all others. But fascinatingly, I think, that perhaps all these modern-day birth announcements are a faint echo from the past. They are an echo from a small town in the Judean countryside. Have you ever considered why we announce the birth of our children? Could it be because of this great announcement here in Luke chapter 2? That there's something to celebrate in life where there should be death. Over the last few weeks, we've considered these narratives in Luke's gospel. We haven't gone verse by verse. Um, We have skipped over John's birth and the announcement of his birth to consider really the details of Christ's own coming. In order to reflect this Christmas season of the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ and Luke tells us from the very beginning that he has written to us a very orderly account. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that Luke gave you all the details you wanted 
Uh, Luke doesn't specify a lot of details. And, And sadly and wrongly, I think, you should not supply details that aren't there. In other words, when you consider the birth narrative of Christ, consider what's written, not what your mind imagines was written. It's helpful and instructive because Luke gives us exactly what we need to know. And Luke, of course, is, is telling us a story, but more than a story, he's making a point. He wants us to know who Christ is and how to follow him. Well, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2, page 857, the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to consider today verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, hear the word of Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is, Beth, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a sound with with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I've summarized this in one sentence, which appears to be the point of this passage. The promised Savior King has come in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That's Luke's point. We can get lost in the details, but the overarching point that Luke has for us this morning is that God's promise has been fulfilled. That God kept His word by sending his son to be the savior king we all need. So I want us to observe this morning, make three observations. There's three observations that I want us to make. First, the manner of Jesus' birth. Secondly, the message of Jesus' birth. And thirdly, the marvel of Jesus' birth. Number one, the manner of Jesus' birth. In verses 1 through 7, Luke gives us that orderly account we would expect him to give. He tells us the manner 
of Jesus' birth. It's quite simple. There's not much to it. He gives us first historical context. He wants us to know when Jesus was born. And by the way, to blow your mind this morning, Jesus was not born on December 25th. All right? And he was not born on zero, the year zero. All right? That's, you know, a kindergartner could fill that up. In fact, he was most likely born somewhere around on our calendar between 4 and 7 BC. All right? So our calendar is off. Somebody got it wrong. But Luke begins here by giving us the historical context of Jesus' birth. He tells us that Caesar Augustus was reigning, and Caesar reigned during this time period from 27 BC to AD 14. He was the ruler over an expanding and expansive Roman Empire. An empire that the world had never seen before. The Roman Empire was truly a world superpower. In order to pay for this expensive and expanding empire, they had to raise taxes. Fascinatingly, that's how our own government does it as well. Um, And so these censuses were not meant to elicit military forces, but rather uh, in order to generate the needed revenue that this empire needed. And so during the time, during this particular time, the Jews lived in relative freedom, but yet were in captivity. Uh, They were governed by the Romans, and they had some liberty, some freedom, and they loved the security that came with having their relationship with the Romans. In other words, they loved to have the Roman military around to keep them safe from invading armies, but that security came at a cost. They also loved the commerce that came from it. Of course, having lots of troops and lots of travelers coming through the, uh, the region of Israel uh, generated much commerce that was needed to support the lives. And so the Jews were opportunistic and took advantage, if you will, of the situation. But while it might have been the best of times, it was also the worst of times. They were still captives. They were still governed by another. They didn't have their own king. They had mock leadership that really had no power. They were, if you will, had puppet governments that controlled and ran everything. All of which answered to Caesar. All of which hailed Caesar, the divine one, the true king of the cosmos. And so like the rest of the Roman world, like the rest of those under Roman authority, Joseph takes his soon-to-be wife and travels to Bethlehem. And I want you to see in the text here, if you can't see Luke's point. Look with me in the text, and I just want you to notice, again, Luke isn't going to put in anything in here that's unnecessary. Luke is repeating something over and over again in the text to, to kind of, like a bell, <laughs> Or a neon sign. Hey, hey, dummy, look at me. Um, Look with me at the text again. Notice how often he mentions this word David. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered and betrothed. Why does Luke go to such lengths to to make sure we hear that word David? Well, because this location isn't by accident. 
Now, if you consider for a moment, Mary is pregnant, right? And if you've had your wife pregnant or, or you've ever been pregnant yourself, of course, one of the things the doctors tell you is at the end, don't do any traveling. Why? Well, because you don't, you want to be near your doctor. You want to be near your home. You want to be out, you know, gallivanting around, you know, maybe at the mall or something like that and have a baby. All that's to say is there's no reason why Joseph and Mary should be traveling if it wasn't for the census. There's no reason for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem. None whatsoever. They shouldn't have been there. They should have been back home in Nazareth waiting for the child to be born. Isn't it fascinating? That of all the places they end up, of all the times they end up, it's right there at the perfect time, in the perfect place. No, we know that this isn't mere coincidence, but rather God using a wicked and unrighteous king to bring about his good and righteous son. This was not mere accident, but this is the guiding of a providential God. A God who is orchestrating and moving all the events of history to this one point in time to fulfill a prophecy that he gave centuries earlier to Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, to me, for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Furthermore, it was to fulfill the promise that that God had given to David that he would have a son who would rule on his throne forever. Friend, I hope you see that Luke is pointing us to this fact that there is no reason for Joseph and Mary to have been there. Therefore, we can see that this is God working and providing the king we all need. God is fulfilling his own word of promise. The king has come. And as we'll see, the angels will confirm it in their message. But I also want you to note here, look at verse 5. We know this well. A number of things I want to see, show you. Excuse me, verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment for my former Catholics and my maybe current Catholics. Or if you have Catholic friends. Ask them about what that word means, firstborn. Because if you have a firstborn, it implies you have a secondborn. Which implies Mary's not as immaculate as we all. Anyways, um, all right, going on. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, by the way, you know, there's no innkeeper here. There's none of that going on. Um, all this text is pointing to the fact of Christ's humiliation. Humility comes before glory. It's important to see the the humiliation of Jesus' birth. Now, now what's going on here? Wrapping him in, in swaddling clothes, that's not abnormal. That's normal behavior. You wrap him up, keep him tight, bundle. 
But what's not normal is laying him in a feeding trough. But this reflects his life, doesn't it? The Lord would say later, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The King of glory, the creator of the universe, is laid in a feeding trough. This reminds us of what Paul taught the church in Philippi, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient, even to death. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing glamorous about this scene. I know we can, in our materialism here in America, we can make this thing look all pretty and clean and neat and cool and all that. But there's nothing beautiful about this picture. It's messy, dirty, and it's no place for the king of glory. But this is how the king of glory came. Consider today in our advanced medical age, I think all the alarms would be going off, right? Barns are not naturally the cleanest places on the earth. But the question I think that has to be asked is really, can this, is this really the Christ? Really? How can this be the long-awaited Davidic king? David in all his majesty and all his glory. His son Solomon in all of his wealth and riches and power and might. No one like King Solomon. Surely he was the Messiah. All the influence. People came and flocked to him from all over the globe. Even the Queen of Sheba went to meet with him. How can this be? Boy, we've really come far, haven't we? How can this be the long-awaited Christ? There's no regalia, no trumpets blasting. There's no celebration. There's no palace, no temple. He's not even born in the temple, the Holy of Holies. The the priests aren't even there. If, If this is the anointed king, where are they? From a human perspective, all of that is good and right and true. But as this scene unfolds, we see God and the angels throwing what is to be the largest party ever, a celebration, pardon. What king was ever born that angels sang? No angels sang when David was born. No angels sang when King Solomon was born. No, in this uniquely humble birth, it reveals us. The Christ has come, the Christ King in his humiliation. When we see Christ coming, we also see what Paul pointed to in Philippians 2 of his obedience. The very fact that Christ came, that he submitted himself to such humiliation. Because Christ came to live the life we should have. I bet you none of us in here would choose this for our own child. Not one of us would. Not one of us would wake up and say, you know, I think it would be kind of fun to kind of, you know, cool and hip to, to have my child born in a, in a, in a barn, right? You know, that's the trending thing, right? No, we would choose that. We probably wouldn't even choose that for our worst enemies. But yet God chooses it for his own son. 
Friends, we know Christ has come. And the manner of Jesus' birth reminds us who Jesus came for. He came for the lowly. He came to be the humble servant king. He came in humility to redeem the humiliated. This was the manner of Jesus' birth. Well, let's consider, secondly, the message of Jesus' birth. Verse 8, and it came in the same region, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Luke tells us that the message came to shepherds. Now I know we've romanticized this and made it all that it's not. Shepherds. Of all the people in all the world that would carry the glorious message that the Christ had come. Did God choose the rich and the noble? The mighty and the powerful? Did he choose the influential or the socialite? I mean, think about it. If you had a message, the greatest message the world was ever going to hear, who would you choose? I mean, you would choose the the socialite, right? The person that was connected to all the, the right groups. The person who had power and influence, right? Someone who had money to spread the message, right? I mean, if you want a message out, you've got to have money to send the message out. You can't just, you know, buy advertisements on your own. In order to get the message out, you need power and influence. After all, if the message was important, wouldn't you want it to have the widest audience as possible? I mean, if this is the greatest news the world will ever hear, why choose A couple guys who are social rejects, who are society's outcasts. I mean, think, if you had the message, if you had the vaccine or the the cure for cancer, would you tell a couple homeless people about it and say, hey, spread that around town? Or would you? If the message was so sensitive and so sensational that it would cost your life if you spread it. More than that, what if the message you carried was so transformative that it would topple kingdoms and destroy families? The message they carried was so scandalous, so salacious, so earth-shattering, that once it was out, it couldn't be put back again. You see, baby Jesus isn't like that little baby Jesus you got in your manger scene, your nativity scene, that you, you pack up and you put back in the attic. See, once Jesus is out, there's no putting him back again. He's out for good. Who would you choose? Well, certainly we wouldn't choose these shepherds. Why? Because you see, shepherds, while they weren't homeless, they kind of came with the same social stigma that the homeless come with in our society. Shepherds were notorious criminals. More than that, they kind of smelled. If you've ever been around sheep, it's not glorious business, right? It's, it's stinky, smelly, it's gross. They're the silliest animals in the world and perhaps the world's dumbest animals in the world. And we romanticize it, you know, and we have this cute little sheep and all that stuff going on. But that's not really what is going on, right? 
So get around some sheep and you'll see why we would say that about shepherds. Shepherds, more than that, they were ritually unclean. In other words, they weren't welcome in the temple. They were the lowest of society. But this is who God chooses. Thieves and those not even welcome in his own temple. But why? Why did God choose shepherds to reveal and carry the greatest message? There's a, a number that I want to point out to you here. First, it reminds us that Christ came for outcasts like these shepherds. God chose these men specifically to communicate who the message was for. It was for the very people who were carrying it. It was for the very outcasts that they represented. The first to hear that the Christ had come was not Caesar Augustus. It was not anyone in the Roman Empire. But it was shepherds. Lowly and despised shepherds. This is who the message of Christ is aimed at. It's aimed at the least of these. It's for those who are the lowest in society. For sinners. It isn't for the rich and the powerful, but for the meek and the lowly. These shepherds embodied who this message was meant for. But I think also it points back to who Christ is. In Ezekiel God prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel that there would come a shepherd who would shepherd his people, who would guide his people. And you'll remember that King David, what was his profession? He was a shepherd. It's by no accident that these angels revealed the glorious message of the Christ child to shepherds to point who this child is. This child is the shepherd king. And this was the message that they carried. The baby born in the manger was not just an another descendant of David. It wasn't just another one born in David's long family line. Not just merely another Jewish baby. But he was set apart. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited king had come. All the prophets had longed to see this day fulfilled. All the prophets longed to see the Christ come. And he came in Jesus. And I think another illusion that we might have in this text was that this child was not only a descendant of a shepherd and his kingship announced by shepherds, but that he came to be a shepherd. As Isaiah prophesied, for to, uh, unto you is born a child, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Brothers and sisters, this was the message that the shepherds carried, and it was a glorious message. We're told here in the text, if you look again at verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the message that they were to carry. And I want to note just a number of things about the message as we as we think about it in detail. First, I want you to see that 
He is a savior. Now, what is he saving from? Well, naturally, one who would have been hearing that message would have been, he's saving us from the Roman Empire. He's going to deliver us from Roman captivity. He would save us, perhaps, from our economic poverty. He's going to save us from these taxes that we're being forced to pay. Perhaps he'll save me from my social blight. But none of these is what Christ came to save. This is why so many were confused by Jesus when he, when he began to teach in his public ministry. Because they thought that Christ was going to come and rule as a victorious and powerful king. That he was going to throw out the Roman Empire and establish again the nation of Israel. But Christ says, no, that's not why I came. That's why I'm coming again for. I'll be back. And when I come back, that's what I'm going to be doing. But right now, I came to save. I didn't come for judgment. I came for salvation. Christ came to save. But to save from what? The Bible makes clear to save us from his father. The son came to save you from his father. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Christ came to save you from his father's wrath. You see, each of us choose to live life our own way. Every day we wake up and say, how can I mess my life up more and more? Not consciously do we do that. No, we don't look in the mirror and say, hey, how can I really make my life more miserable? No. Subtly and slowly in our own lives, we live life our own way. We do things our own way rather than God's way. This is fundamentally what the Bible calls sin. And the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. In other words, we have a warrant out for our arrest. And the judgment has already been decreed. Guilty. And the sentence has already been proclaimed. Death. There's no getting around it. There's no pleading with the judge and saying, would you be more lenient with me? You don't understand. Let, Let me justify. Let me explain to you what I've done. No, God has no time for that. Arrest them. They are guilty. And sentence them to death. And the punishment is swift and the justice always right in God's courtroom. And so, what did Jesus come to save us from? From that terrible scene. To to save us from the Father's wrath. To save us from the wrath that our sin rightly deserves. Brothers and sisters, you and I will never understand our need for a savior until, until we grasp the depth of our own depravity. You will never see Jesus as a savior until you come to a point where you realize I need to be saved from the father because he's going to kill me. You will never see Jesus as a savior until you have a grip on your own wickedness. 
and how much you need a Savior. Until you come to the end of yourself and realize there is nothing, no amount of prayers, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of church attendance that will ever suffice and satisfy God's wrath that your sin deserves. Never. Stop doing that. It ain't going to work. Let me put you out of your misery right now. Your good works do not impress God. All right, there you go. Now you can get out of that cycle of thinking God's impressed with you and start understanding that God is impressed with His own Son. And He's impressed with you through His Son. Until we recognize that we cannot live life our own way and live that we need a king. And here's what's glorious. Christ came to be a certain kind of savior, a substitutionary savior. One who would say, you know what? You can't do it. Look, I just need you to stop trying to live life your own way. Just time out. Stop doing it. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come and I'm going to live the life you should in perfect obedience. All the times you're prayerless, all the times you, you rebel against God. Here, I want you to just pause for a moment. I will come. I will live your life for you, Jesus says. And then what will happen is the Father, by faith in me, will credit to you my perfect life. More than that, I will satisfy God's anger that your sin rightly deserves by dying the death you deserve. And here's where it gets all the glor- more glorious. I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again. And all of that will be a sign to you, a proof to you, a seal to you that I did live the life you should have. And I did die the death you deserve. And if you will trust in me, you too will live. What did he come to save you from? He came to save you from you. To save you from destroying your soul. And to save you from the Father's wrath. More than a message of the gospel, I want you to see also that the angels announce that the child is none other than the Lord. Look again what he says. The angel says to them, fear not, for I behold, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, you'll remember over the last few weeks, I made a special attention to the fact that Luke always uses the word Lord. Now, I'll just give you one example. Have your eyes open. Look over. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, wait a minute here. Now, I'm going to just use a little logic here. Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. Wait a minute. I thought that the child was the Lord. Exactly. That's the point that Luke wants you to see. And he does that throughout chapters 1 and 2. So that your, your head is ringing with the word, the Lord. In other words, Jesus is God. That's the point. This is what the church has affirmed from all throughout all the centuries that the Christ is none other than 
the Lord. He is the eternal God of the universe. He is above all. He is maker of all. He is ruler of all. And the angels declare to all that the Christ is none other than their creator and master, the God and Lord Almighty. Jesus is, as we said earlier, truly man and truly God. He is, as Paul writes, the image of the invisible God in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But before there is glory, there must be humility. This is the way of the kingdom of Christ. That the first will be last and the last will be first. It isn't the rich and influential, but the lowly and the poor that the Lord uses. He chose an unknown, insignificant family from Nazareth to raise his son. And Matthew Henry, reflecting on this, and we don't give Matthew Henry, I don't think, enough credit, but, but he's good. It's good commentary on the text. Matthew Henry, a few hundred years ago, wrote this. God knew well how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor are to envy the rich and how prone the rich to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and lying in a manger, our vanity, ambition, and envy are checked. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, seek great things for ourselves or our children. The message of Jesus' birth is twofold. The promised Messiah has come. God has kept his word. And he has come to rescue God's people from sin and Satan. The message also had a a second surprising part, I think. No one expected it. It was completely unthought of. That God himself would come. This was all new. This was all fascinating. The prophets pointed to this, but no one paid attention. That the promised child to come was to be the eternal God himself. Clothed in human flesh. This naturally leads to our final point, the marvel of Jesus' birth. In verses 15 through 20, we are told that the angels burst into acclamation and the shepherds run with joy. We're told that they make haste to go find Mary and Joseph. And they do find him, a baby lying in a manger, we are told. And they went and told this great news, this glorious message. I want you to see a couple of things here in the text. Number verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As I said earlier, once Jesus is out, you can't put him back again. There's no neutral response to Jesus in this text. There's no like, ah, okay. Sure. So what? See, there's no neutral response. There's no just kind of non-response to Jesus. The announcement of Jesus elicits marvel and wonder. We are first told that the company that was there, we don't know who else was there. Apparently it was more than just Mary and Joseph. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They wondered about it. They were in awe of it. They marveled at it. What is this? What? This isn't just a baby. This is the eternal God. This is the creator of the world. This is the Savior King laying here in the feeding trough. What? Notice also Mary's response. One of treasure. One of joy. Why? Because she knew who the child was. Mark Lowry was wrong. Mary did know who the baby was. She knew because the angel had, had told her who the child would be. She treasured it. And I think Luke has a point that he's making here in verse 19 about Mary. As she's treasuring up these things in her heart. I wonder how much Luke isn't pointing forward. In Acts chapter 1, in a familiar passage to many of us, where Jesus ascends into heaven. We are told that that the disciples were accompanied by another. By the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Mary saw the beginning and the continuation. She saw the beginning and the end in sight. And what is so glorious about this passage is that our response to the announcement of Christ should be the same as Mary and the rest and the shepherds. One of glory and praise. This announcement induces in us a desire to glorify the Lord God. For he has done this thing. Do you not see that God drawing near to you, treasuring up all of this in our own hearts, the measure of God's love? Do you see that he loves you by bringing his own son into the world, that he might pour out his own wrath upon his own son for people who want nothing to do with him? For in this text reminds us that we are not too far from God. That we're not too far gone. That that we've not fallen so far that God can't save. We've never sinned too much. The Lord is drawn near to you through Jesus Christ. This is, my friend, all the evidence you need of God's love for you and for this world. More than that, this announcement, I think, elicits in us praise. We actually open our mouths. We're filled with joy and hope because God has not cast us away. I want you to see something in verse 20. The shepherds returned. Returned where? They went back to the hillside. Message so glorious. So awesome. So powerful. But it didn't change their status in life. They were still meager shepherds. They were still social outcasts. But their whole universe just transformed. Their whole world just got turned upside down. Because God had drawn near to them. 
More than that, we praise the Lord for his sovereign plan. I want to go back for just a moment and and hint here for just a minute at, at the illicit praise that the angels give in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This text reveals to us why Christ came. He came for a particular people. To have a particular redemption. A redemption of the elect. Whom is it that God is pleased? Friends, none other than his, his chosen people. Those whom Paul tells us God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ has come to save those and to save all those whom the Father has given to him. And Jesus promises that he'll lose none of them. Do you have hope? Do you have joy this holiday season? Brothers and sisters, do you see that God in Christ has rescued you from your sin? That Christ has saved you and will save you if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you would see that Christ has come to free you from your sin. To break the chains of captivity. It is Christ who has given you a new life. Christ who has ushered you into his eternal kingdom. Christ who has given you all that is his. Christ, who has welcomed you and said, come, dine with me at my father's table. For my father is no longer angry with you. My father is no longer going to destroy you. For I have come to die in your place. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more for us to do than to sing praise and rejoice in the Christ who came for sinners. I conclude with this From an early Puritan writer. What shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear son, begotten, not created. My redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. His infinite love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is the wonder of wonders. He came below to rise me above. Was born like me, that I might become like him. Here in his love, when I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me up to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them indissoluble, the uncreated and the created. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give no more. The marvel of Jesus' birth leads us to deep and true worship. There has been none, nor will there ever be, a birth like this. The eternal Son of God clothed himself for all of eternity in human flesh. The manner of Jesus' birth points to his humiliation. He was the humble servant king who lived the life you should have. The message of Jesus' birth was the Messiah King had come to rescue God's people from their sin by dying the death they deserved. More than that, the message revealed that the Christ was the eternal divine Son of God. 
and the marvel of Jesus' birth leads to worship. Friend, God has drawn near to us. He has not cast us away, but has made a way through Jesus Christ. God has kept his word. He has kept every promise he made, and he has kept it in Jesus Christ. A final exhortation, a final application. Friends, like the shepherds, let us go in haste to share this glorious message. Let us tell others that the king has come. Let us tell them that salvation has come. True joy and hope found in Jesus Christ. Let us evangelize the world for the king of kings has come. And thanks be to God, he's coming again. Let's go and share that message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would be made gloriously large in our hearts such that we would submit to your will Repent of our sins and trust in this Savior who has come in Christ. We pray that you would be glorified for all of eternity in us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen.